welcome to Valley Church. It's great to see each and every one of you. Happy that you're here. Um, we are going to be continuing in the book of Matthew this evening, sort of. Um, my plan was to teach the next passage um, that was coming up, which would be verses 24 through 27. So if you could open to chapter 17 right now in your Bibles. Uh, the next passage I was going to teach was verses 24 through 27. It's these temple tax collectors who have a question for Jesus and his followers. Um, but last week, uh, Jared Vogt was a guest teacher. If you missed that uh, teaching, it's a, it was wonderful, and you should find it on our podcast and catch up. Um, but he spoke on verses 14 through 20. So I was going to pick up in verse 22. You'll notice that that's the next passage here. I was going to summarize 22 and 23 and then spend the majority of my time teaching 24 through 27. But there is something interesting, which is that verse 21 is gone. Look down at your Bible. Look at the end of the previous passage and the beginning of the next. Where did verse 21 go? Raise your hand if you have a verse 21 in your Bible by chance. Some of you might. No? Okay. So... Verse 21 is not there. My Bible has the number 21 in brackets, and then yours, depending on the version and how old it is, it might have the actual text there or just like what mine has. So here's what happened. I started to write an explanation. I was going to teach 24 through 27. I started to write an explanation for why verse 21 isn't there. I was going to do that in like five minutes as quickly as I could, then move on, summarize verses 22 through 23 and then spend the most of our time teaching 24 through 27. The problem was that I kept adding more and more kind of background to why verse 21 isn't there. And I kept explaining why that wasn't there and then explaining the thing behind the thing and then the thing behind that thing. And before I knew it, there's just a whole message that needs to be given on why verse 21 isn't there. So it's going to be a different message preaching on the absence of a verse, which is weird. Um, But that's what we're going to do today is we have a teaching on why that isn't there. I didn't want to shorten this explanation, and I also didn't want to shorten um, the teaching of verses 24 through 27. So that will come next week, but today is going to be slightly different than what we normally do. In my mind, it's the kind of thing where it's like, I would only talk about this with people that volunteer. They're like, hey, I'm curious about why that's not there. Can we talk about that? And I'd be like, yeah, let's go get coffee, and we'll talk about it. But it's happening now. Maybe you'll love it. Maybe you'll think it's super boring. I don't know. Let's pretend that you asked me, hey, what happened to verse 21, okay? If you could ask me now really quick, then we'll be on the same page. Perfect. Let's talk about it. Great. So there are roughly 16 verses in the New Testament, um, which most modern translations of the Bible will omit, and they will give a footnote for why that is. And in those footnotes, you will usually read something like, some manuscripts include the following words here. So the actual text of the Bible, the New Testament, will not have it, but then in a footnote, they'll say, here's, here's what some manuscripts include. Um, mine says some manuscripts um, include here words similar to Mark 9, 29. Maybe your, your notes say something similar. Um, if you've been reading your Bible for a while, you might remember that there's a whole story in the book of John in chap- part of chapter 7 and part of chapter 8 that is bracketed. It's uh, the story of this woman who's caught in adultery, and the Pharisees are kind of getting ready to punish her according to their law. That's when Jesus famously says, he who is out sin cast the first stone. There's a section at the very end of the Gospel of Mark that is bracketed. And the reason why they are bracketed, and in, in, that, in those cases, usually they're included in the actual text, but some Bibles, it's different. 
The reason will be something like the earliest manuscripts and other ancient witnesses, which is just a weird word for saying ancient manuscripts and sources of the Bible, um, will say that they don't include those sections that are bracketed. I don't know if you've noticed this. Um, it's not wrong. It doesn't mean you're not a lover of God's word. If you haven't noticed these kinds of things before, maybe you've noticed, maybe it's bothered you, maybe it hasn't bothered you. Um, but I'm hoping that maybe when we're done tonight, we might have an understanding of why that happens so that when you come across it, you don't have to be discouraged or confused. So in order to make sense of this um, thing that has happened in the Bible, um, the other handful of places in the New Testament, um, in order to make sense of finding these omissions, we have to talk about something called textual criticism. And this is where you're like, oh gosh, what have I gotten myself into? Um, I've never talked about it from up front. I didn't necessarily plan to. Um, you might find it boring, and that is okay. If, you want, if you're like, hey, I love God's word, I trust that it's God's word, I'm good, then you could just like check out for a little bit if you want, and I don't know, play a game on your phone, just turn the volume off. Um, <laughs> how did I know you were gonna say that, Kevin? I just knew it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know you are. Um, but if you're curious, why this happens, why some Bibles might include or some Bibles might exclude a verse or two, we're gonna take some time to explain it. And in order to make sense of it, we have to talk about text criticism. And in order to talk about text criticism, we have to talk about the Bible in general. We have to talk about the doctrine of inspiration. Have you guys heard that term before, doctrine of inspiration? Cool. So the Bible is a little library of many different books. It contains 66 books written over the span of like 1,500 years, 30 to 40 authors, maybe even more people have kind of had their hands on shaping the text to the point that we have it now. But we also call it one book, the Bible, because we believe that all of these books somehow tell a unified story that leads to Jesus. And we call it one book because though there's lots of different authors from different time periods and different places, we also think that all of these books share one co-author, God himself. So the fact that we follow a God who speaks, who communicates with people is amazing. The fact, the fact that he speaks through written words is also amazing. But even more mind-boggling to me and mysterious even is the truth that we confess as a church, which is that God spoke through the varied voices and literary styles of human authors to give us these scriptures. I think that that is a mystery on par with like the threeness and the oneness of God and the Trinity or the humanity and the divinity of Jesus or the predestined salvation of God and also the free will choice of humans. I think all those things are true and they seem paradoxical, but they're true. So is the human and divine authorship of the Bible. It's a beautiful thing. And we call the scriptures the word of God. The language that the Bible uses to help us get to this spot is of God breathing out the words of scripture. So 2 Timothy 3.16, you probably read it before, says all the writings or all the scriptures, the Greek word behind that is graphe, where we get our word graph. It's for something being put pen to paper or cut into a stone or something. All scriptures are God-breathed. So that word, God-breathed, is one compound word in the New Testament. We have the word for God and then the word for breath or breathing. Um, and the Greek root word letters for that part of the compound word that is for 
breathed are PNEU. Those are the English equivalents, PNEU, where we would get the English word pneumatic, like an air-powered tool, or pneumonia, where there's an illness of the lungs and respiratory system. Um, so most translations, probably all of ours here in the room, um, say all scriptures are God-breathed, and I think rightfully so. But there are other translations, some older translations, that would say all scriptures are inspired by God, or something like that. And I think this is because the Latin translation of the Bible, um, the Latin root S-P-I-R means to breathe. And we have a lot of English words that we can recognize this from, like the word expire merges ek and then spire together and we have an X. Um, aspirating or respirating or perspirating is your body like breathing out its grossness. Or inspire. Um, the problem is that to us today, the word inspired usually just means something like um, motivated or encouraged or you're kind of given a fresh boost of ideas or something. And so when certain various doctrines of the Bible were given English names, inspiration meant breathed into. But it doesn't necessarily mean that today. And so the name for this theological truth that we believe in, that the scriptures are breathed out by God, is called the doctrine of inspiration, but we need that to mean that it's breathed out by God with the traditional Latin sense of the word or something. These words come from the breath of God. So we have to get out of our minds the thought or the idea that God, you know, kind of pushed people along and, and inspired them to write these, these biblical texts as if God was their muse. No, God was the co-author who was breathing this into people so that they were writing the God-breathed scriptures. Um, Peter uses the phrase um, that the prophets were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You can see at the end of that Second uh, Peter uh, passage that they were carried along by the Spirit of God in their, in their writing. So this doctrine of the God-breathed nature of the Bible is called inspiration. 2 Timothy 3.16 is clear that it is the writings themselves that are inspired. And that's an important distinction. Um, the authors themselves, as humans, were not inspired. It was the text that they were writing. The events that they were writing about, even down to the words of Jesus, the events that they were writing about are not what is inspired. It is the text that they wrote under God's inspiration to them, breathing into them these words. Um, the problem is that we don't have any of the original writings of the entire Bible. We don't have any of the originals. And honestly, I don't know that it would be possible with any certainty to say if we found some previously undiscovered version of the Gospel of John that we could wave it in the air and say, this is the original and we know it because of X, Y, and Z. I don't know that we could actually do that. What we do have are thousands, thousands of copies and fragments discovered from all over the world and uh, remarkably well preserved as best as is possible for ancient documents. There are old fragments of papyrus scrolls. So this is like this leaf that grows on the side of a river and they take strips of it and they weave them all together and they dry them out in the sun and they would write on them with this primitive form of ink. And we have sections of... Um, parchment that are sewn together into what's called a codex. It's like an ancient form of a book. Um, so we have all these sections of, you know, papyrus scrolls where it's like part of a book of the New Testament or we find like a big uh, discovery of like, you know, seven scrolls with all of the writings of Paul's or something like that. Um, so we have all these kind of varied manuscripts found at different times and in different places, each of them containing different sections of the New Testament. 
side note, I'm talking specifically about the New Testament when we're talking about text criticism, specifically about the New Testament because the Old Testament is really different, actually. If you want to talk about Old Testament text criticism, you can ask me to go out to coffee and we can talk about it. Um, so text criticism is the noble art and science of putting together the most accurate representation of the God-breathed scriptures based on the manuscripts that we have. So this involves ultra cool nerds poring over every fragment of every scrap of a manuscript that we found that has to do with scripture, that has the scripture in it. And what they're doing is they're looking for and making sense of all the possible differences between all these thousands of different manuscripts that we have or in what is called, in literary jargon, are called variants. So these are textual variants where one scroll from Matthew says it this way and a different scroll from Matthew found a thousand years later says it this way. And they make sense of why those differences are there and they put together this composite image of what our Greek New Testament is. So for example, if we gather all the various ancient manuscripts of Matthew, like 900 or something, from the very earliest papyrus scrolls where we find a few chapters of Matthew to a really late, ancient, still ancient, but late source of Matthew that has like the book in its entirety. If you examine every source and every word on every, of every single word of Matthew that we have, you can with reasonable certainty paint this kind of composite mosaic image of what Matthew likely originally wrote. If 98% of all these sources that we can find say, exactly the same thing, and then there's 2% that are like maybe a little bit different, I think we can be reasonably certain as ancient texts go that we have what Matthew wanted us to have. You guys doing okay so far? Yeah. Okay, sweet. There are many, many rules to textual criticism. I will tell you some, more of them if you wanna get coffee and talk about text criticism, but two of them for now that apply to us. Um, if you have two manuscripts and one of them has an addition to it. So it's, it's added something. Um, generally speaking, we consider that more likely to have been added to an, to an original, especially if it's trying to make sense of something. So if someone is copying the Gospel of Matthew for their church context, and they're copying it, and they're like, that's weird. Jesus said this, and he ended here, and it was kind of choppy. And I know Jesus said this sentence in Mark so I'm just gonna throw it in here and it's gonna help make sense because he said it and it's true, Jesus said it, but Matthew didn't write that maybe on purpose. And so someone will be adding something to make, help us make sense of the Bible. And I think that's what's happened here. So generally you prefer when you're debating between two um, different readings, you've got two different manuscripts that give us a different sentence from Matthew, whichever one has been added to and is essentially trying to help make sense of and clarify, we say, that's probably not original because someone after the fact was trying to help it make more sense. Does that make sense? Cool, okay. Another rule, a short rule, is that we just prefer the older reading or the older source or older manuscript. The closer the manuscript is in time to when the original source was written, the less likely it is that it has been kind of tampered with or changed or copied to all these different people in different places. So what's happened? In Matthew 17, 21, is most likely that someone, we'll call him Terry, tried to add something into Matthew 17. Terry knew about Mark 9.29, so let's throw Mark 9.29. This is the parallel passage of what Jared just spoke on last week. Um, there's this 
child who is ill and the disciples cannot seem to heal him, even though they had been commissioned by Jesus to do so. It says, after Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Verse 29 is what is sometimes inserted as verse 21 of Matthew chapter 17. So Terry knows about Mark 9, 29, the parallel story where the disciples couldn't cast out the demon. And in Mark, Jesus says this line, this kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. But in Matthew's version, Matthew doesn't write that down. He doesn't see that as a detail that he needed to include. Matthew's verse ends at verse 20 with this kind of confusing cliffhanger where Jesus says, if you have the faith of a mustard seed, you could tell this mountain to move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Um, It's possible that Terry's like, that's a little confusing. Also, I know what Jesus said in Mark. And so I'm just gonna throw this in here and it's gonna help this passage make sense. Um, Classic Terry, he ruined it for everyone. So there's a translation of the Bible that has notes for when this kind of thing happens and gives us some good explanations for it. It's called the New English Translation, the Net Bible. It is wonderful. There are some Bibles with notes that will give you like cultural background commentary or theological, like they're trying to help you understand what this means theologically or they'll give you like life application principles based on what you're reading. All those are wonderful. The Net Bible is just a little bit more like explaining why the text is the way that it is and it's really great. And so I'm gonna read the entry from the Net Bible notes on verse 21 and you can see what I'm talking about. Many significant manuscripts, that's the abbreviation MSS, and then you can see in the parentheses all that nonsense are abbreviations for different manuscripts. So that first one is the um, Hebrew Aleph and that is the Codex Sinaiticus and it's this big book that has most of the Bible and it's one of the best sources for the Bible, one of the best ancient sources ever. And it's got all these other ones, these letters and numbers that no one needs to know. Um, All those don't include 1721. This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. The verse is included in this other assortment of ancient manuscripts, and it's included in a lot of them. Many of them are good manuscripts, but it is almost certainly not original. As Metzger notes, Metzger, just so you know, is like the ultra greatest Bible nerd for New Testament text criticism. He wrote this book called The Commentary on the Greek New Testament, and it's this amazing book that literally literally accounts for every textual variant and why our Greek New Testament, which all of our translations are based on the Greek New Testament that he would have worked on, why they made decisions based on this manuscript versus this one and what are we, how are we making sense of all these differences. He wrote a book on what all decisions were, went into that and it's wonderful. I'm not saying you should read it, but you could if you wanted to, but it's, it's pretty boring, I'm not gonna lie. Um, As Metzger notes, since there is no satisfactory reason why the passage, verse 21 of Matthew or Mark 9, 29, since there's no satisfactory reason why the passage, if originally present in Matthew, should have been omitted in a wide variety of witnesses. So to put it positively, he's saying there's no reason why if Matthew wrote his section, Matthew 17, 21, and he included that verse of this kind can only be cast out by prayer and fasting, He's saying there's no good reason why someone would have wanted to take that out. If Matthew had put it there originally, there's no good reason why someone would have wanted to take it out because it existed elsewhere. Jesus was known to have said it. And since copyists frequently inserted material derived from another gospel source, this is a thing that happens. There's parallel stories in the gospels, particularly Matthew, Mark, and Luke. 
And when sometimes there are parallel passages, someone who's like copying the Bible knows that and they'll maybe accidentally or on purpose bring in verses that existed in another parallel story. Copy is frequently inserted material derived from another gospel. It appears that most manuscripts have been assimilated to the parallel in Mark 9.29. So though that addition of verse 21 exists in a lot of ancient sources, it's less likely that Matthew intended it to be in his gospel. Make sense? It's a very long explanation of why verse 21 isn't there, and maybe you never cared in the first place, but there it is. There are many, many ancient source documents for the Gospel of Matthew. Um, some of them have added that verse, some didn't. Um, text criticism rules dictate that the older, shorter, and maybe less clear reading is likely the original reading, and therefore our modern Bibles take out verse 21 from Matthew 17. To be clear, Jesus did say that line, that this kind can only, become out, uh, can only be cast out by prayer and fasting. He did say it in Mark. And Mark recorded it. Matthew chose not to. Um, I got real lost for a second. Give me a moment. Okay, I'm just going to move on because who knows where I am in here. Uh, there's about 16 verses, like I mentioned, that at one point might have been in the Bible and now aren't. And there are a ton of textual variants, the differences between manuscripts. So, I think there's something like 200,000 or less words, words in the Greek New Testament. And I think there's like 400,000 textual variants. So across all the manuscripts we have, there are more variants than there are actual words in the New Testament, which is a lot. And if someone throws that fact at you without kind of describing the context of it, it can be like, whoa, there's a lot of errors or mistakes in the New Testament. And that's just really not a helpful or true way of talking about it. Like 70% of that 400,000 variants are spelling discrepancies. So does John have one N or two Ns in the Greek? Or is it Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus? Like all these tiny little differences that don't meaningfully at all like change our understanding of the text. Um, that is like 98% of the textual variants are things that if they were original, they don't change the meaning of the text. And the other category of variant is, something, is a, a variant where it has a reliable source, so it has a really old manuscript, or there's a lot of manuscripts that say that this is how it should be read. Um, if they're reliable, and if it significantly changes the meaning of the text, well, that, that is a big deal and something that we should look at. But there's two things to know about that kind of variant. One, it accounts for less than 1% of that 400,000 uh, variants. And two, None of those variants, that, though they might change the meaning of a sentence or a concept, none of them have anything to do with like really important core biblical Christian truth. So that's something that maybe you need to take my word for or maybe you need to like dig in and like study this and become a text critic yourself. But that is what I know about the textual variants that there are lots, but almost all of them are very, very meaningless. So finally, we, the question that we ask with uh, ancient documents is, can we be confident that what we have has been authentically and responsibly and truthfully transmitted to us from when it was written a long time ago? And the way to answer that is by 
examining the variants, but also examining the number of manuscripts and then the gap between when a work was supposed to have been written and when the earliest manuscripts um, exist. So we talked about variants, and so now let's talk about manuscripts and gaps. I had no idea that you guys would get to talk about this when you came to church, and I know that for a fact. Homer's Iliad, written around 800 BC. The earliest manuscript we have is from 400 BC. So there's a 400-year gap from when he was supposed to have written it and when how old our earliest manuscript or copy of it is. Um, and the number of manuscripts around today that we can read and say, this is Homer's Iliad, is 1,700, thereabout. The plays of Sophocles from the fourth century. Earliest manuscripts date to the third century, so we've got maybe 100 years between the source and the earliest manuscript. Number of manuscripts for that is 193. The Annals of Tacitus, a trusted and comprehensive history of a certain section of the Roman Empire, written in AD 100, the earliest manuscripts that we have, AD 850. So there's a 750-year gap between when it was supposed to have been written and the earliest manuscripts that we have. Number of manuscripts, 33. And so this is not to like disparage ancient literature. That's just the way that history works. Like these are written on old, fragile, brittle pieces of paper. So we don't have unlimited copies of these. It was expensive to write things. So we can trust that, that what we have, that Homer actually wrote the Iliad and that Tacitus wrote good history, even though we only have 33 copies of what he wrote. I just want to put it in perspective. The New Testament, earliest book written between 50 and 100 AD, earliest manuscripts that we have, 130, so there's a gap of 30 to 80 years of when something was supposed to have been written, and the earliest manuscript we have, and the number of manuscripts is staggering, like almost 5,800. So there's a lot of manuscriptal evidence. You can look at high, if you just want to nerd out, I get it, you can look at high resolution images of these pictures taken from all the museums where all these manuscripts are, and you can look and you can see them for yourself. I can tell you from personal experience, it's really hard to read ancient Greek from papyrus or parchment. The number of manuscripts doesn't by itself mean that the New Testament is reliable, logically. Uh, what it means is that these documents were really important to the early church. It means that there was a need and a desire, a huge demand, an insane demand for all these copies to be made and then translated and sent out to all these different parts of the world. And so while it doesn't necessarily mean that the New Testament is reliable, it does give us a huge sample size, a huge sample size to determine if we can accurately see if we have what Matthew likely wrote in the first place. So rather than dealing with like, say we've got, say you had 10 versions of Matthew and three of them had some significant differences, you're like, well, sure, that's only three out of 10, but like we only have 10 copies and so how do we know? That's way different than like, 900 manuscripts that have portions or all of Matthew in them and most of them are identical and where there are differences it's mostly spelling or Terry added in that verse again you know um, it's a very long way of saying that I trust that the Bible is I'm convinced that the Bible is trustworthy that the book that you have in your hands the act like those English words are what is God breathed and useful for your life to inform you of who God is and who you are and what he wants for you and for your life. Um, 
Yes, there are lots of manuscripts, and yes, there are lots of variants in those manuscripts. And yes, it would be nice if this book that we base our life off of was not in need of really careful scrutiny and study as to its origins, but that's just not the case, nor is it the case with any ancient work of literature. Also, isn't it just like God to partner with humans, even when that means that things will get messy? He did it with Adam and Eve. He gave them the mandate to do what he did in the beginning, which is to create life and to create beauty in this garden and to develop towns and cities and culture. He did it with Abraham when God wanted to restore his relationship to all these nations that had abandoned him and gone their own way. He partnered with Abraham to bring his blessing and relationship back to the world. He partnered with kings to rule his people and it did not go that great. He partnered with prophets. He spoke through broken people to give messages of hope and judgment to other broken people. The second person of the Trinity enfleshed himself into a human body and experienced brokenness and decay and death. God partners with us now to become like Jesus and to live as his people, as part of his kingdom on earth as we wait for it to come fully. So I'm not surprised when God's word comes through human authors through human mediums of writing onto papyrus that disintegrates and parchment that fades, copied by humans who get tired, make mistakes, or try to clarify things when they shouldn't. I think it is, in fact, just like God to do this. And so the, the pursuit to understand the reliability and the authenticity of our Bible is a, is a worthwhile pursuit. And if me talking right now has created more questions than given you relief, I understand. And that might be God calling you to kind of dig in a little bit. Uh, that pursuit is a beautiful, deep cavern that can get lost in and learn and study. And there will be bumps and bruises along the way and things that make you scratch your head. But I'm confident that what you would find at the end of that is that you trust this accurate, reliable, God-breathed scripture that is in your hands. And if you don't want to go on that journey for yourself, I don't blame you. There are people who have dedicated their lives to this very journey so that we can have very reliable, good translations of the Bible in our hands. So there's this doctrine of inspiration, which I wholeheartedly believe in. Uh, but I also believe, I don't know if it's an official doctrine, but in the doctrine of the preservation of Scripture, that God is not left to chance or solely up to humans to preserve his word from when he breathed out into, through these authors until now. I think God has had a hand in protecting his word from century to century and culture to culture, translator to translator, so that we can have what we need to know him, to understand the gospel, to be saved by what we learn here, and to preach the gospel and teach the scriptures. Isaiah 40, verse eight, I think, Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Let's pray. Jesus, we're thankful for this um, unique thing that has happened in Matthew, the omission of verse 21, and thank you for the questions that it has brought up for us. And Lord, I just ask that this topic wouldn't um, scare anyone, but that it would cause us to to dig deeper, perhaps, um, to ask good questions and to do so in a community of 
of followers who are not looking to deconstruct just for the sake of deconstructing, but who are wanting to break down so that we can build up a true and accurate understanding of how you've spoken to us through your word. So we thank you for the ability to trust what you've said. We love you, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.